Yeah, everyone. My name is Eleanor MacDonald and I welcome you to Mob Dreaming Up, Yarning Sick, Disabled Realities. This is a group yarn with a bunch of mob all around the country and we're talking about the realities of being disabled and sick within the colony from the perspective of mob um, in all our lived experiences. So I'm Eleanor. I'm Paradarama Mob from the southeast coast of Chuana slash Lachuita. That's Tasmania. I've struggled with a lot of illnesses and the inaccessibility that comes with my disabilities for a, a long time now. It's something I feel very deeply about, which is why I was so honoured to be able to help create this show and invite everyone that's here today on it. Tabitha, if you want to introduce yourself. So, Nyata, everyone, my name's Tabitha, or as my ancestors know me, Gudan Nyata. I'm a Gudjitjamara woman born and raised and currently living on Ghana country. Um, I'm a formerly incarcerated woman having spent almost two years in Adelaide's prison for deviant women and accumulated two years on home detention. I'm still tethered to the state um, on parole for a further two and a half years. And um, I suffer significant mental illness, namely um, major depressive disorder, anxiety and post-traumatic stress. And in fact, it was my illness that led me um, to both my offending and subsequent incarceration, as well as those illnesses being exacerbated worsened by the carceral state. And I also have chronic illnesses that I manage day to day. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. I'm Renee. I'm a verified Dungadi woman on Wadawurrung country. Um, I was raised on my country and then spent a long time going everywhere else. Um, I finally reached a diagnosis a few years ago. Um, I've got something called ankylosing spondylitis um, and another thing called cirrhotic arthritis. Um, a bunch of autoimmune diseases and um, mental health issues, major depressive, uh, post-traumatic, you know, a bunch of other things. They like to travel in pairs. So um, I'm just happy to get... Um, my lived experience out into the world and share it with people. So, and also, I feel it's really important that other people, um, especially Aboriginal women, find that support within their culture as well. So, wherever I can do that, I will. Hey everyone, I'm Molly. I'm a Rajui woman and I'm living on Ngunnawal and Nambri country in Canberra right now. But I was raised and grew up in Mwollomba, which is Bunjalung country. I live with several autoimmune diseases, including hydrogenitis, which is a skin condition, um, suspected Crohn's and a lot of gastro issues, as well as inflammatory arthritis. And yeah, I have lived experience of both disability and caring for my mum, who's also an Aboriginal woman who was killed by medical negligence and has definitely caused both her and myself, quite complex trauma and PTSD around the healthcare system. Hi, I'm Samia and um, I'm a Bunjalung Gifable woman and I was actually born in Canberra and um, I was removed from my mother and spent a lot of time in institutions and juvenile justice and on the streets pretty young. I've had an eventful life, <laughs> good and bad. Since I was very young, I had a diagnosis of Crohn's, so very ill for a lot of my 20s and 30s, long periods in hospital, very long periods in hospital. And 
I also now have secondaries, which is um, arthritis and some neurological autoimmune dysfunction. And um, I have bipolar affective disorder too, and post-traumatic stress syndrome. And currently I'm recovering from a nightmare of a broken back and mistreatment and then resulting in negligence at the hospital that resulted in shoulder surgery and further negligence that resulted in being in intensive care with acute liver failure, all caused by the hospital. And so I've become pretty much completely disabled and can't walk properly and sometimes can't word find and I now can't work anymore and we were just talking the hospital is completely lying about it covering up their tracks and the reason I got poisoned was because they did an incorrect discharge report with someone else's name information medications etc so they gave me the wrong medication which nearly killed me so I'm having a really fun time not <laughs> yeah Oh, it's me. Um, <laughs> um, I'm Hannah Murphy Walsh. Um, Hannah from the from Central Victoria, basically. Stumped at where to begin describing myself. I mostly operate as a deaf person um, in this world, but I do have a number of other congenital abnormalities and various health conditions that. I think add up to one disabled person. Yeah, well, um, I didn't say um, my conditions but uh, at the beginning, but basically I have endometriosis, fibromyalgia and gastroparesis, for which I currently have a semi-permanent feeding tube, medical device, um, to keep me alive, um, which was a very long process to obtain um, mm. and which I nearly didn't obtain in time because the medical system refused to believe that I was sick and that yeah. I couldn't just force myself to eat in inverted commas. Um, and as a result, I have post-traumatic stress disorder from the trauma of battling doctors who just didn't give a shit. So, yeah, we all have a lot of really important and horrible and um, what's the word? I guess, well, yes, important experiences, I can't think of the right word, um, that are not heard enough and that's something I'm so excited to yarn about today because so often um, how illnesses and the reality of being black in the colony intersect are just not acknowledged or even talked about enough, even within communities. So I'm really happy that we can do this today. Um, and I think I want to start with talking about the ways in which we are um, locked out and cut off from the support and um, connections we need. Um, I don't know who wants to start, so um, I might just share a bit more about my experience, for example, the racism, even as someone who is um, white passing, fair, I have red hair, um, you know, Eurocentric appearing features 
it didn't um, within the medical system it didn't matter um, although I of course acknowledge that uh, mob who are of darker skin are also discriminated explicitly for that reason because of the racism within the colony but um, I'm speaking I can only speak from what I know of it and even with my fairer skin the racism I experienced within medical spaces and the medical industrial complex more widely has been horrific and I wish I could just escape to country and live there for the rest of my life and never have to go into a medical space again no doctors yeah. no nurses yeah absolutely I, um, um sorry no you go oh I just wanted to um mentioned that one of my first um, experiences of going to uh, an Aboriginal health centre um, was really impacted by um, a white person's view of how, because I just expect to walk in there, because when I grew up, you know, we had all of my extended family were there. Um, yeah. You know, you could walk down the street and say, people would know who you are or, you know, you'd know their cousin or whatever. And um, I walked into this this yep. Aboriginal health centre having just moved interstate and knowing no one. And um, they were like asking me for, you know, where's my paperwork? And I'm like, well, nobody's ever asked me for my paperwork before. So already, you know, I'm, I'm walking in the door and I'm getting um, these boundaries and these walls put up of, I'm, yeah. I'm already reluctant, you know, to go in there, and um, and because it's having to deal with that, you know, that history that you have of um, medical stuff, and then um, to be put with that, I was really taken aback. So I think that put me um, on the back foot already. Yeah, um, for sure. And that was, you know, I was like 12 years old or something, and I remember being 12 and having panic attacks. Um, mm. I was. My, I've got a kid that's that age. He um, and I'd had an experience of um, I was home alone and the cops knocked at the door and um, came in and raided my house um, when I was there alone at you know 11 or 12 years old. And I remember just sitting on the couch, just feeling like I was going to die because I was just so panicked about this. Um, and then, yeah, in this new place where I didn't have access to, I didn't have that extended network anymore, so I couldn't, you know, just go down the road and talk to someone. Or, um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I'm having this really intense thing that I um, wanted to reach out and get help with, and then already those barriers are, are up from. And you know, I remember, and Miley, I have a similar experience in that caring for somebody. You know, from the age mm -hmm. of ten or eleven, I was caring for an adult. So, um, you know, I, I've, it's hard enough for grown, powerful, you know, empowered women to go out there and do it. I can't imagine how this this little girl would have been able to do it. Um, but, yeah, it really was a case of, like, if you haven't got your piece of paper saying you're an Aboriginal and the government says you're an Aboriginal, you're not welcome here. And just, yeah, I don't think I've ever had that experience if I've walked into a... Um, a, a room full of mob and had people there that no one's ever said to me like can I can you show me your paperwork <laughs> you know can you yeah. show me that you belong here and that you access that that you can access this this community 
And that's the thing I find with mainstream health services and hospitals is they play gatekeeper. Mm. I found that even, you know, coming home from prison where I was released onto parole under mental health orders, I needed to access my medication. And I went to the chemist with the scripts my doctor had prepared, which had closed the gap on them as part of the Close the Gap scheme. And I'm a fair-skinned woman as well. And immediately he said to me, well, where's your card? And I said, what card? He saw your card that says you're Aboriginal. So I'm like, we don't do those these days. So there's me coming home from a really traumatic two years inside where you mm. absolutely brutalise and have subpar healthcare, if you can even call it healthcare, coming out on mental health orders, not being able to access my medication. And, you know, he refused to give me my medication until he could get in contact with my doctor to confirm that I was Aboriginal. Like, and it's this stuff that these organisations do, right, about gatekeeping and, and there's this whole rhetoric in the health system about self-managing your illnesses and, you know, sort of putting that responsibility on us. But we've almost got to go cap in hand begging for this stuff on policy states, you know, and it's that that impacts us and impacts your health, yeah. Yeah, the card line, I tell you. And my, I'm married to a white fella, and so I send him him, and I've had people looking over his shoulder like, where, well, where is she, you know? Where, where is this, this brown person that you're supposed to be caring for? I had, mm. you know, even people who work at the pharmacy, and, you know, if you're coming from, I mean, medical trauma is another layer on top of this that, you know, Tabitha, you, you've come in from this um, prison, you know, a, a literal prison and um, trying to take care of yourself from that and then being met with that. It just, and the gatekeeping, is it seems to be everywhere um, in, in the medical community. I've mm. taken my children in and into a, a specialist and, um, you know, I'm sure you guys have had it happen where they, they don't ask you the question if you identify. They choose to, that answer for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, even, that's one of the most insulting things for me that you don't get to choose that answer. I, I get to identify and especially I know maybe um, some of you might relate to it that um, because you can pass as white. I find that it's more important to introduce my culture into that situation because for me, it's like they win. If you don't say, mm. this is what I'm entitled to, this is what you're giving to me, this is what you need to do for me, you know, it's like forcing their hand into in, into doing that. Yeah. 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 It really is. Um, it really is some kind of motivation to keep black followers off of their list somehow. Yeah. I am yeah. um, every time I have to call into the hospitals um around here, which is a nightmare already, um, they always just go ahead and assume, like when they're doing that check off of your know, these are your details, please yeah. confirm it tonight. They always just go um they always just automatically say, Oh, you're not Aboriginal despite mm-hmm. the fact that it is it must. It should be on the, on my file somewhere, and the fact that if I walk in, physically walk in, like it is fifty fifty, they will definitely have to ask. Yeah, it, yes. It's so blatant that they just like they just 
don't want to think about it. They don't want us to be there. Yeah, they don't. Yeah. They feel like it's pandering. And yeah. then, yeah, one of the. I was just going to say one of, the, and then one of the consequences. If you if you finally get that, oh yes, you are original, and then they start looking at you and going, um, but like, how can I be sure? Because mm. I've got this essentialized idea, and if you're saying you are, then you must be lying to me. And so everything you say after this, I'm not going to believe you because you've just you've yeah. lied to me from the beginning, and I'm never going to listen to anything you say because yeah. you said you're Aboriginal, and I've been taught this. Essentialized idea from media, from school, from my own family, and so I'm just not going to listen to you. It's so loaded too. That whole behind that is not just I don't think you look like an Aboriginal. It's like I don't think you deserve this treatment. I don't Mm. think you should access this healthcare. I don't think you should get this. You know, and it's so loaded with all this um, even unconscious bias that they have towards Aboriginal people. That you know, I I remember being in pain all night one night um, because I didn't get diagnosed for a long time. Um, I had a lot of other symptoms that sort of just happened and got worse and worse and weren't managed because I wasn't getting any treatment. But, um, you know, standing in this this dentist's office, begging them to see me because I was in so much pain um, and, and them saying to me, like, oh, no, you have to pay the $20 to get in or whatever it was. I didn't have the twenty dollars, man. I, you know, I, I didn't. I just didn't have it. And um, trying to beg them and say, you know, but I'm an Aboriginal. That means I get free treatment here. You know, it's not that. Um, and you know, him arguing back and forth, this person with me. And in the end, I said to him, like, do I have to come in in a bloody lap lap and with my face painted or some <laughs> crap? Like, is that what? What is what level mm. do I have to meet of um, of it, to be able to access this thing and I think Hannah was it you that said that um it's no I think now I'm just rambling but uh you know it's a it's a mental block that they add to that access that mm. you know when you go in there you're going to have to face that and you're going to have to deal with that and that you're not worth that care like yeah. the moral failing I mean exactly. the thing that's Oh no, you go Tabitha. I was just going to say that that moral failing stuff is is like that in prison. So for mob inside, getting, we don't have access to Medicare funded health services. So for example, you know we know that something like ninety percent of women who are in prison present ha- having had mental illnesses or or active mental illness. Yet we don't have access to Medicare funded psych services. So there's no access to psychiatrists and psychologists and counselling. Um, and they, they act then as gatekeepers. So when we go in and we're upset and we're, you know, right at the end of it, you might be having a little bit of PTSD stuff and not sleeping. When we go in as black women, we're seen as difficult, hard to manage, not able to look after ourselves, attention seeking. And actually they pathologise us when really they should be looking at the system and going, you know, we know that this person is... Exactly. We know what the statistics say about mob entering prison. I mean... Yeah. The reality in this country is that people with a mental illness comprise a disproportionate number of people who are arrested, who come before courts and who are imprisoned. And yet we have nothing to support them because, again, the, gate, the system gatekeeps, even when they've got us behind their gates. Yeah. You know, we just can't exactly. in the country. And 
I mean, I didn't realise until I had to engage with the medical space as a, as they call it, a complex patient. The moment you don't have a broken leg or something they can slap a Band-Aid on, you're a complex patient. I didn't realise how easy it was for them to cut you off and say, we're just not going to do it. Um, with my gastroparesis, it means the stomach is partially paralysed. It just, the food sits there. It doesn't get moved down very well into the next stage of digestion and um, I nearly died from it. I became very, by the time I had a tube placed, uh, I was about a week away from death. But even that, even saying that within the medical system, oh, no, you weren't. But I was because mentally and physically, my body had had enough. I'd been battling for two and a half years to even get the diagnosis of gastroparesis, let alone the nutritional care. And I remember a really horrible memory um, before I finally got diagnosed in Nam, Melbourne. Um, I was at the hospital back in Chuana and care outside of the major cities is just abominable in hospitals. There's nothing. Um, and my, I was desperate. I was like, I can't eat. I can't, like, there's nothing I can do. I can't put more in and I'm barely eating and I'm barely drinking and I'm ending up in here every month from dehydration and malnutrition. And my parents were there and they just, they were so hopeful. They were saying, surely, I mean, you're so sick. You need that care. Yeah. And the doctors came in and they said to me, you just need to try harder. You know, you, you're not doing, you're not doing it hard enough. You, you know, you can get it in. You're just not trying hard enough. And I, the thing that sticks with me the most that day is seeing my mum in tears because she thought I was going to get that help and because she's a nurse herself and she herself is within that system. And she thought, Give, despite how hard it is, I was that bad that surely I'll get care, and they just didn't. They didn't care. It. Yeah. I only. I'm only here today because I had a doctor who is an expert in um, the gut in the field of the gut conditions that I have. And if he if I hadn't seen him, I wouldn't be here today. And it, even that acknowledgement, the medical system doesn't even want to admit. And to care, every time I go in, it's a battle. If it's anything more complex than, oh, you know, I have an infection or something, I just need antibiotics. Yep. It's every single time. It's the same back and forth. I had to go to the hospital today to pick something up, but I, I realised it last night that I had to go home and I had to pick something up and I just started crying because mm -hmm. just the space of hospitals alone, mm -hmm. that impersonal, they don't care and if they don't want to offer you care they're not going to offer it it doesn't matter if you're about to die or you're already dead they're not going to take responsibility and oh and to think a mob in the colony isn't it Constantly yeah having to appeal to the colonizer and these sort of medical institutions for our own humanity are basic yeah. human rights which are documented by the un yet every day when you front up at hospital or at these medical places you've got to beg for that yeah. It's no different to us having to go for our flour and sugar now. It's and now sugar. insulin and ventilins and medical treatments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just and the constant the constant drain that puts on you and the mental strain and then having to go back home and trying to, you know, be something for your community as well. Yeah. While also battling all this. Um and then you, you think you can, um, I think this is something Hannah can speak to. Um, <laughs> sorry, Hannah, <laughs> the moment of panic there. Um, but I think you can speak to it is 
you're facing all of this. So surely, you know, mob haven't been, mob were disabled before colonisation, mob were disabled during colonisation, mob were disabled on the missions, mob were disabled everywhere. So you think surely there must be some kind of network of support to help disabled people, but you go and look for it and does it exist? And you were talking about it the other day, Hannah, and I think um, you spoke really well on it if you want to. Um, yeah, no, it's it's really stark actually, I think as an adult with disabilities, because I mean, I was a disabled kid. Like I was literally born with a hole in my head. So like right from the beginning, it um, it was sort of very clear that I had to be fairly able, like I could be different. Different is fine. Different is very accepted. But not mm. being able to physically match up to other people is still scary. There's still like a lot of fear that I think there's a lot of fear of the sick person, but there's also a lot of fear of the consequences of what sickness, um, perceived sickness can bring. And I have like a lot of my childhood stories. I'm like, this is a funny story. And they're actually really traumatic. Um, <laughs> one of my uh, funnier stories is about how, um, and again, I was an asthmatic from pretty much the time I left the hospital. And one of the memories that like sticks in my head of my father, um, he's, he's stone gen, so he just does not like doesn't engage with government institutions. Anything he perceives as it does not like it. And I I remember once I must have been using my inhaler more than normal, um, just like a little venom, venom puffer. Um, and I remember him saying that um, it wasn't good that I was using it so many times because I might um, I might become addicted, and when I need it later, it's not going to be there. Mm. And I know that like this sort of scarcity mindset. Mm around you know supplies to black fellas and our health is just yeah like and that threatening of that as well like the constant threat of you can be taken away this can be taken away from you if you you know become the the difficult quote-unquote difficult black woman or, yeah. um, and I think they don't they being most of the population don't acknowledge that Inherently, blackfellas come with a giant, giant, um, not necessarily like an, a mental illness, but they come with a giant lot of sorrow that mm. they're just carrying yeah. as a people. Well, I mean, I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't have that, unless mm. they're severely disconnected from their, their culture. I don't think that I have met one Aboriginal person that, does not have that heaviness within them. And I think, you know, if you got to look at healthcare that's appropriate for us, that needs to be taken into account. And we do need to have these barriers removed. Otherwise, it's going to be our experiences time and time and time again, you know. Yeah. Um, Mali, Samia, do you want to speak to any of the stuff we've been talking about. I know um, your experiences have both been very traumatic, so feel free to say no, but... Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. So I'm in an interesting situation because my background started as an Aboriginal health worker when I was in my early 20s. 
I'm now 61. And so I've worked in health for 30, 40 years. And my most recent job has been as an associate professor teaching Indigenous studies at University of Canberra. But before that, it's all been in health, population health, public health, Indigenous health, HIV, medicine, et cetera, et cetera, community health. And my last job before this one was teaching Aboriginal health to medical students. And so all of the things we're talking about, I've watched over the whole of my career be issues and trying to address them and trying to make a change in the system. And even going back to like, I can remember a time where there was nothing around collecting data um, for Aboriginal people accessing mm. healthcare. And we had big, you know, promotions. This is 40 years ago about that people needed to be able to ask, ask those questions so that we could get proper care. This before. And now they're back. They're like, they're kicking back on us almost. So it's mm-hmm. like, I go into hospital, like recent experience. Okay. So I go in, doctor comes to me. It's on my file that I'm Aboriginal. So he says to me, oh, so what do you do in this tone that's already patronising? And then he says, oh, so, like, do you have a job? And I go, oh, I'm an associate professor. Oh, attitude changes completely, 150%. Oh, you must be intelligent. Oh, okay, I need to treat you differently now. But then as soon as I start asking questions and going, well, no, you shouldn't be doing that or actually this is the way it should be done, I'm, a, like you said, angry black, difficult black, you yeah. know, problems that shouldn't be there, thinking I should have special treatment, you know, oh, um, complex needs, oh, probably a drug addict, she's in pain and saying mm-hmm. she's in pain, must yeah. be a drug addict. I've heard, I, I heard a nurse say while I came out of recovery Um, and my arm was in agony, walk past and then say to another nurse, because I was saying, can they get the Aboriginal liaison? Oh, no, they're busy. And I said, can I get the social worker? Oh, well, the social worker's for other people, not for you. And then, you know, I'm going, excuse me. And then she goes and says, I hear her at the nurse's station. She goes, oh, you know what these people are like, you know? And then now, because they've made all these errors, of course, it's because I'm Aboriginal and I'm imagining it all. Oh, yeah. Mental yeah. health patient and I'm imagining it all. 100%. And I've also been told, oh, but you should be going to your own services. It's about time. And I'm at the point, like you said, about being afraid to go to hospitals. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up with my mum being terrified. A lot of my generation of the stories of, you know, having your kids taken. So we had, yeah. I grew up with a lot of stories about, you know, the fear of hospitals. Mm. And um, after what I've just been through, which has just been like, you know, that you talked about nearly being, you know, they came into, I have shoulder surgery as a result of the negligence of going in for a different treatment that they lie about. And then I wake up in intensive care because they give me the wrong medication and then they're standing there telling me, 
oh, well, you might die in a couple of days as if I'm a piece of meat that doesn't even matter. And then I was saying to Marley, like last weekend, I started vomiting again and being really scared that my liver enzymes were going bad again. And so I got a taxi to a different hospital because I was terrified to go back to the same hospital. Mm. And I got there and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and was having constant panic attack and just saying to myself, why have I even come here? Like I'd be better off being dead than being here. And I was so terrified. And I'm at that point, it's like I'm terrified now to go to hospital. Mm. Yeah. And Mm. I don't know what to say about it because I'm rambling a bit, but, you know, it's so interesting to have been someone who's worked in all those healthcare settings. I've been an advisor to the minister on mental health and suicide for um, Aboriginal people in the ACT, like on the advisory. And then I contacted them about this. None of them want to hear. None of these people want to hear. None of the complaints procedures. No one wants to hear. No one wants to do anything. So I think what is happening here, even though I didn't know it was going to happen and I was going to be a part of it, is really important because unless mm. our lived experience starts being yeah. heard as exactly. a group, no one's ever going to take it seriously. Mm. Yeah. Like it has to be challenged. The system is broken, absolutely, mm-hmm. utterly broken. And not just for us, but for the nurses and junior doctors as well. Yeah. That's also, I have Aboriginal student doctors who I taught who've suicided because of the treatment yeah. they got in hospitals, mm. you know, who've been molested by senior surgeons, That's you know, funny. who are afraid to say that they're Aboriginal because mm. they'll get treated differently. The they get treated. Place. Mm. Yeah. But then they want to take you and be the poster girl. Mm. You know, our poster girl, you know, Aboriginal doctor and they're so groovy and they speak four languages and, you know, stand on one leg and they can do dance as well as like do, you know, be do surgical procedures and guess what? They just look like white people almost, except they're yeah. black. Like they want us to be what they want us to be, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I spent all day yesterday sobbing because I feel so hopeless about mm. the whole situation. I've just been approved for the NDIS and I came home from hospital early because I was so afraid of being there and I was deathly ill and I live alone. I spent literally two weeks before someone showed up so I could even have a wash, you know. Yeah. It, is meant, it was meant to be after hospital care but they couldn't get it together. Mm. So I just sat in my same clothes I was so sick I couldn't even make my own food. Luckily I had some friends who dropped in, but, like, people are dying. Mm. Yeah. And, you uh, know, all the, all the way across the country it's not just one no. group of people. No, it's, it's not everyone. Just, and that makes it's not like other only remote communities. Mm. We're in Canberra. Yeah. We're on Ngunnawal country. Yeah. We've got the worst hospitals in the country mm. and we're in the mm. capital. And, you know, sis, like, that makes me think the system isn't broken. I think the system is working exactly how it is well, intended. In that way, yeah. yeah. Because this colony is designed to erase and kill us. Yeah. I think that these institutions that yeah. are supposed to be health care, and that's, you know, an oxymoron, isn't it? Like, this, yeah. you know, these institutions yeah. caring for us, 
I don't think they are. I think they're deliberately working as the colony needs them to. And that's a really kind of jarring thing to think, right? But unless they're performing for them, you know, when you talk about the doctors and that they can also dance, exactly. They want us when we can perform for them. But when we need something, that's where we know our place. And Mm -hmm. and you're right, because I remember, you know, Foucault, you know, without getting academic, but, you know, prisons, institutions, they're all, they're all based on the same format, you know, which is power-based and yep. oppressive. And Control. So we're, we're victims who've made ourselves sick. It's yeah. our fault, you know. If only we did the right thing, we'd be better somehow, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's how those systems work. And hospitals are based on exactly the same system as prisons, exactly the same system. Mm. Sorry, yeah, I was going to say I find that... Um, discourse when I have been trying to get a, dis, um, a diagnosis it's always like well you're, do you know do you know good nutrition Marley like are you eating properly um, and mm. I like two years being referred to dietitian after dietitian um, just with them trying to get me to lose weight before I was able to see an Aboriginal dermatologist who was like all of your conditions are connected you need to see a gastroenterologist why has mm. no one believed you and it comes down to that, you know, that discourse of like, oh, you don't know how to manage yourself. You don't know how to look after yourself. And, you know, my mom dealt with this too, where one of the most insidious examples is after she died of medical negligence and we went through the coronial inquest, they changed her cause of death on her death certificate mm. from respiratory failure and pneumonia to including chronic pain, diabetes, all that <sighs> that was not you know related to the negligence that killed her but yeah. for them it was to paint a picture being like oh look anything to know, cover up your body was unruly you weren't looking after yourself you know yeah. it was these things that killed you not us and yeah. then I think we've mm. got that double crossover of like being someone who's chronically ill and facing these cultural things as well that um you know some days if you like like you guys were saying before having to spend so much time in a hospital or going to an appointment and for someone who's got a chronic illness whether that's physical mental whatever you just run out of energy and then on top of that you're forced not only to advocate for yourself as a chronically ill person but also as an aboriginal person on top of that and it just I had someone say to me recently another I had another aboriginal person say to me you know oh I went up uh, the Northern Territory and um, went out on country with people and they were just so happy and so wonderful and they said to me they didn't understand why all us mob down in the cities were all unhappy uh, and I said well mate if I had freedom to go out on country whenever I felt like it and was surrounded by my community I'd be happy as Larry as well and you know we'd have so much more of that those things that nourish the other part of us that is not just you know your your gut has this inflammation or you know your your spine is wrong with this so if we had those things I'd be pretty happy about that too like and it's just yeah it's it seems like we're running a race Mm. with no yeah um, also the like the idea of like you know, there's this dichotomy between like the happy-go-lucky Aboriginal out, like in yeah. some remote mm. location doing whatever mm. they want, and like 
the urban Aborigine who's like sick or their favorite is anxiety yeah. or a chronic presenter. I hate that that term exists. Um, I hate that you know it exists, but it does. And I think I'm going to start to sound conspiracy theory-ish here, but I promise <laughs> it's not. I think a lot of problems have come with the way, because like you said, comment exactly who said it first. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But there's been a lot of data gathering over the last, like over the last 50-ish years. And a lot of it, like it does not change the actual outcomes for black people at all because the systems themselves are so fucked up. So what happens is these we see all of these statistics about like black people dying young, black people are more likely to have this disorder or this disease or, you know, they are more likely to present in severe distress or, you know, the popular one about alcohol where we are less likely to drink overall but when we do we are more likely to be problem drinkers. And these things are used against us. They are perceived as personal faults Mm. instead of being, because the system is so geared towards the individual being responsible for the individual, that instead of, you know, seeing all of these, you know, awful gut-wrenching statistics from one particular place, or, you know, seeing just an absolute, lack of information from say the regional and remote areas which are so deeply underfunded like how would you how would they know they're happy you know it becomes a way to obscure the Mm. bigger picture that they're actually supposed to be gathering this data for like instead of fixing the problems it instead becomes about identifying the problems and then turning it on yeah instead of actually dealing with the problem and the I mean, the funny thing is, the reason, another reason why there's so many more in the cities who are sick and they're struggling is because they have to go to, to get treatment. I had to come to Nam to see a doctor who would believe me because there was nothing in Chwana. It's so underfunded. The moment you step out of sight, outside of those major areas, it's just not there. Yeah. And another thing, Samia, when you were talking, um, that I oft, often drives me absolutely, I get so angry. Um, is a restriction in medical spaces on how you can be and how you connect. Like you cannot, it didn't really fully be realized to me because I mean, a lot like, I mean, I have these complex illnesses. So I'm on a lot of Facebook groups to like, you know, learn uh, from other people and find out lots of things I wouldn't otherwise know. And it wasn't until I was on those groups that I realized how different the white person and specifically the white woman's because it's often white women in these groups what the white women's experience is they go and they say look if your doctor's not listening to you because yes there's also the phenomenon of doctors not listening to white women I mean that's all the that's all the books we ever read my doctor didn't listen to me so I've got I've written a book about it and I've I've got one sentence about non-binary queer trans people and non-white people one sentence covers it and they say you know you've just got to be angry you've just got to argue with the doctor you've just got to say it and I have never felt more powerless or out of control than I have in medical spaces. It doesn't matter what I say. If I argue, I make it worse. They will put on my notes, she is a difficult patient. Yeah. Maybe we should call security. Yeah. I just don't get angry because I'm protecting myself 
from the consequences of me being seen as that angry black woman. If I get angry, they're going to call security and I will have, you know, permanent notes on my file that I will never be able to erase saying she didn't, she didn't respond. She didn't listen. She was wrong. But if a white woman does it, I, bizarrely, I mean, I just don't understand. They argue and the doctor goes, oh, the white women's tears phenomenon. Oh, of course. Sorry. Yes, you're upset. And when a white woman is emotional, they say, oh, yes, you're upset. I understand. When a black woman is emotional or a black person, a non-binary person or gender fluid person is, or if a black man is emotional, they say, that's why you're sick. You're sick because of whatever mental thing you've got going on. You've been listening to Mob Dreaming Up with Elena, Marley, Renee, Samia, Tabitha and Hannah. To listen to the remainder of this program, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2021. Treats the community radio, 855 AM.